This episode contains difficult and real conversations around topics such as eating disorders and food phobias. Listener discretion is advised, so please only listen if it feels safe for you. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Open Mind Self-Care Sessions with me, Frankie Bridge. Today's episode is around our complex relationships with food, and I'm joined by a psychologist, Felix Economakis. Hi, Felix. Hi, Frankie. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking to me today. I feel like this is a really important subject for so many reasons. I feel like it's things like food disorders are quite misunderstood Hmm. do you feel like in this day and age do you find more people suffer with things like social media around and stuff or or not oh definitely yeah Uh, i am definitely and it's it's spiked because of their current situation obviously eating disorders referrals inquiries are going through the roof uh, amongst my colleagues and myself, but but we hear from from people working in the NHS that they're overloaded, they're swamped with referrals. Really, and eating disorders can be one of those things that is to do with control. You know, the less control we have in our lives, the more people try and replace it and substitute it with what they can control. And if you're a teenager, typically it's that age bracket, but also young people in twenties, it tends to be replaced with an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people who are university students, for instance. They're sort of getting to bulimic, anorexic type behavior now as well, because there's under such constraints, they can't socialize, they can't interact. And, you know, they, they don't know if they're coming or going with the, the exams and what's going to happen in accommodation. And they're feeling really out of control. Uh, it's not always to do with control, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a big part of it. Yeah, I'd say that's one of the biggest misconceptions maybe with an eating mm. disorder is that people don't really understand. They, they think it's always about the food and being someone that has suffered in the past with an eating disorder um, all of mine came down to control yes I didn't realize that at the time obviously Mm. but I can look back and reflect on that Mm. and I think that's what makes it very difficult when you're trying to help someone with an eating disorder I think as um you know being a parent myself if I could see or even a friend or family member but you know, just as an example, if I saw my child wasting away in front of me, hmm. my first instinct would be to just eat, just yes. eat, you know, try and force them to eat. And that's not the answer, yeah. is it? It's not. I had a, a case um, recently with this. There was a girl around 16 years old and she developed anorexic type behavior just since the start of the pandemic and didn't really have it before. And um, she went to a CAMS unit and they were basically force feeding. What, what I mean feeding, you have to eat six times a day. You have to eat this or your privileges will be taken away. Wow. Your f- mobile phone, which is the center of her world as a teenage girl. Mm. And obviously she was rebelling against this. She, her father said she wouldn't come out of the room because she's really kind of cheesed off with everything. And I, I had a brief chat with her. It became v- very clear. This is not really about food or calories. You know, this is, as you said, it's that knee-jerk response of people saying, well, you're you're not having as, as many calories as you should, so you need to have calories. And so it's not really about calories. In her world, she's feeling out of control. She's trying to reassert some control. And the more that her parents push, the more she pushes back. Because, you know, if you've got headstrong parents, you probably have headstrong children. So it's about understanding she needs to be in control. She needs to be factored in the equation. You can't impose top-down laws on her. 
and expect her to comply, she's going to push back and things are going to get worse. So it becomes this face-off. So she really needs, you know, the last thing you should be doing is taking control away when the whole thing is about trying to get more control in her life. You're just not being able to see the wood for the trees Mm. in her case. How do people, a lot of people wrote in about how to separate feelings from food. And Mm. I know obviously, like we were saying about control, but I mean, I know myself, if I'm feeling down, I'll mm. go to the cupboard. And then yeah. you kind of have that cycle of, oh, this mm. is going to make me feel better. And then you feel worse because you shouldn't mm. have eaten it. And you've probably eaten 10 packets of chocolate that day or whatever. How mm. is there, is there, do you have any advice on how to kind of separate the two things? Yeah, I use this metaphor that imagine you have a part of you that's a bit like a child and this part of you wants something. It's probably not calories. It probably wants comforting. So I'd say, you know, don't don't just go on the first impulse, the first emotion, like I've got to act out this uh, impulse. It's take a step back for a second, say to a part of you, hold on a second. If you're really hungry, I will get you food. But is that what you really want? What, what do you really need? Do you need more food right now or do you need what? You force a part of the mind to take a step back and go, what do I really want right now? You know, I thought I want chocolate, but really I want distraction, a little bit of comforting. I say, well, the problem is I can get you chocolate, a whole packet of biscuits, but afterwards you're going to feel a bit crap. So, you know, I don't want you to feel crap 10 minutes later. What do you really need? What, what can I do for you? That's win-win. You know, I need some comforting. How about you have a lovely bath? How can we f- phone some friends? Is there something I could, you know, you'd like to learn online? Is someone you want to chat with? Is that you can go out for a walk? It's to get more resourceful in the moment about things and to really, you know, pin it down a bit. Like, what do you really need right now? Mm. Because when a part of the mind is distressed, it just wants comfort, 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 and we act on it. We just enable it. But it wants comfort, not food. And if you just stick with it a little bit more and say, what kind of comfort is that comfort? that you really need and go through some options sometimes until a part says, Oh, that sounds better than food. Yeah. I don't really want biscuits. I want that. I want to get out of the house. I want to call a friend. I want to do this. I want to do that. Now, occasionally, Frankie, you're, you're allowed, you're allowed. It's okay <laughs> to have <laughs> loud, sort of dictation. Um, you can have a glass of wine, you know, like Friday evening, my wife and we kick off, we'll have a glass of wine. It, you only, I only drink once or twice a week, a glass, not, mm. nothing major. But it's that kind of thing like it's Friday, let's open up a bottle of wine. That's okay. That, that, that is the pleasure in itself, is the liquid, is the mm. food. But other times it's not about the food, it's about something else. So it's just getting in the habit of discerning don't actually want food or am I just bored, unstimulated, feel like calling a friend or just want some reassurance? You know, am I angry? Do I need to level with somebody? So as you get in the habit of discerning what the unmet needs are and you meet them, a part says, well, I don't need food anymore because you've you sold it. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's quite a nice one that works very well. So kind of just take a beat to think about it before you actually do it and see. Yeah, and, and tune in a bit and say, you know, what, what, what do you really want? You know, is it this? Because I'll get it. But if it's not, food really is that what you really want this is something else and it's almost like you know with children children can be quite passive they don't really know what they want so you and i as parents we we sort of try and coax the idea out of them we say so what is it really do you want more this or shall we do more that and they're very reactive like no 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 and then think oh actually that could be quite nice (laughs) and it's sort of you know so coaxing out of them until you realize okay so that's what you really want right now but you know young child can't articulate it you've got to go through the, the process with them and help elicit that information from them. But as you get in the habit of doing it, like any habit, you get better at it. And you, you don't just jump in and say, oh, I want this. Oh, let's give it. It's like, hold on a second. You know, do you really want that? Do you want a bit more of this? Or is it that? Mm. Or what about this? It's our job to be uh, quite resourceful, to be presenting other options. 
and uh, some of them stick. And, and occasionally, you know, nothing works always. A child will go, no, I really want chocolate. Or I really want this. And, you know, they're not interested. Yeah. That's fine. You know, you're not going to, you know, children, the goalposts keep moving. But, but if you can get in the habit of just checking, what do you, do you really want right now? Take a moment and just go inside. What do you really need most right now? Even for a child, it's mm. quite good training, quite good practice for the future. But sometimes it can go opposite, can't it? So I've had times mm. in my life where I've been anxious and... Mm. whatever and actually I'm not hungry you know you're Mm. kind of running on adrenaline all the time and someone sent in a message and said when I'm stressed or anxious or feeling low I'm not hungry to the point Mm. that then when I do eat if I like force myself to eat I'm sick is that Mm. quite that seems like the opposite then to the the other issue that we're talking about because it, it does express differently in essence what we're doing is we are trying to impose a solution onto our subconscious mind that doesn't want that, wants something else. And, and for me, that's sort of pushback. So if I'm saying to my subconscious mind, it's feeling down, depressed, you eat this, you've got to eat it. It says, I don't want to. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. You know, one of the ways the subconscious has any leverage is it says, fine, I'll throw it back up. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I'll prove that I'm not doing this. I'm making a stand on principle. And exactly the same behavior that a child or indeed an adult can do to their parents is exactly what our subconscious mind can do to us. So in a way, it's like a mirror. The relationship I have with my subconscious mind is a bit like a parent with a child. And you can see that with a real parent and a child. You know, you see exactly the same thing happens. Your subconscious mind doesn't like being dictated to, just like a real child doesn't like, has a sense of pride, has a sense of, you know, wants to be respected. So if you just go in, you know, heavy handed and just imposing stuff upon it, and it's not in agreement, it it will push back. And that's the way it gets control, even from you. Yeah. Because I have seen a lot of people are very critical, very invalidating to their own selves. And that part sometimes either gets depressed and sad and, you know, everybody hates me, including my own self, or it pushes back and says, don't tell me what to do, you know, yeah. only if I want to. And it can get stuck in, no, 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 like like our children, you know, just the defiance and doesn't take the next step into, well, what, what do I want? Maybe I do want what's being proposed. It's just stuck in that negative thing of, we have this history of you trying to make me do stuff. So I'm just going to say no on principle. And then you've got a person who's at, at war with themselves. They're fighting themselves. Whereas if you look at a happy person, I'd call myself a happy person. I'm pretty much in harmony with different parts of the mind, mm. you know, because there's no dictatorship. It's meant to be a relationship. You're meant to, you know, check in, consult with parts of the mind. You know, what do you need? That's fine. Let me do that. And as you do all these things, you find they trust you, you trust them, you've got a happy managerial kind of system. But if you've got a dictatorship, that's going to backfire. And a lot of people are very compassionate, kind to others, but they're very dictatorial with themselves. And that's not going to end well, because Mm. there's going to be pushback. So it just shows you how strong the mind is Mm. and how linked... I mean, you hear people talking more and more about how linked the brain and the gut and the mind Mm. and the gut are these days, but you kind of have Mm. proved that completely there. Your brain's telling you one thing, no, you need to eat it, you need to eat it, and your body's saying no, don't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's the same way that, you know, you you can spend a thousand pounds on gym membership and never turn up. You think, well, one part of the brain is saying, we are going to the gym and here's the money to prove it. Another part is saying, well, I'm not going. One day one part wins, one day the other part wins, but there's no unity, there's no teamwork in that. So the idea is to get people to do teamwork with their mind. So instead of saying you're going to do this, you know, just just you know, work as a team like you do outside in the real world. Get to know this part of you 
get to know what do you need? What kind of exercise would you like to do? Oh, actually, I don't want the gym. It's boring. I want to do dancing. Let's sign up for a dancing class. Oh, I'm going to dancing every time. I've never missed that once. That's how to work with your subconscious mind. It's got its preferences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our mind is very much the, the, the sensible thing to do. You know, it's all about the logical thing and career advancement and your CV. But the emotional part of the mind, it wants to sort of enjoy life, to stop and smell the roses. It wants some fun. It wants to dance. So you've got to factor that in as well. You know, too, too often we're squeezing out that part of the brain and life becomes too serious and staid and kind of boring. And eventually the part either retreats or it says, well, you know, the only thing I've got going for me is wine or food. Mm. So I'll go for that because I'm not getting any other pleasure in life. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, you know, you've, you've got to be a manager with parts of your mind. And a good manager is always checking what you guys need to do your jobs. Mm. That's what a good manager does. A good manager is a servant. It's not a dictator. And too often people use the dictatorial model on themselves. Yeah. yeah. And what if, because uh, quite a few people said about fears of food, like some, someone said they have awful thoughts about food and they're scared to eat. Yes. And then... Well, that, that's yeah. the sort of the RFID, which is my speciality. It's the phobic responses around food. And again, it all comes from a lack of trust with food. Because if fundamentally we don't trust food to be safe, we think if we eat in some way, it'll harm us in some way. It doesn't make sense to approach it as far as your subconscious mind is concerned. It's going to do everything to avoid that. So then your conscious mind is saying, I've got to eat this, I should eat it. And subconscious mind is saying, but it's not safe. And again, a person's at war with themselves. Mm. What does, so, sorry, what does ARFID stand for? Oh, pardon me. Um, so ARFID stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, which is basically kind of food aversions. Right. Uh, it used to be called Selective Eating Disorder. And it's very, very common. And people can have it with some foods, but as a lot of people have it with a lot of foods. Right. And how does that manifest itself then? Because now I'm like... Oh, have I had that? Does my son have that? Like, what? how does it... Well, um, there's also, to confuse matters and muddy the water, there's normal fussy eating as well. Mm. And you can have ARFID plus age-appropriate fussy eating. So, so where does the line... Where do you cross over from one into the other then? Well, it, it's difficult because, you know, when I treat some children with ARFID and they're eating food that they've not touched before, there's still some foods they're into and their parents are still saying, oh, he's not doing it. So, well, that, you know, they can also be a bit fussy too. You yeah. know, they don't have to be better than the average child. We don't all like everything. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to, you know, it, it's also processed. Like, uh, you know, I hated stuff when I was young that I love now. So it's not then, it's not the, the finished product, the finished article either. It, it, there is a process. And the thing is, we sort of forget to appreciate the process at work and we're all about the result, mm. you know, in many things. So what about they've got to eat it now? Why do they have to eat now? Why can't they eat it in a month or six months or something like that? So we're all a bit anxious and trying to get everything done, the right nutrients. But you realize that, well, you know, the child might be moving towards that anyway. But what I do know is direct challenges the child is going to usually create clamming up or pushback. So it's counterproductive. You've got to work in an indirect way. You've got to be doing it by, you know, respecting the child, what it's trying to do and lead it to a better way of seeing things, but not by force. So you, you know that Aesop's fable thing about the wind and the, and the sun have a, a bet about how they can take a man's coat off and the wind tries to blow harder and harder and the man tightens the coat more and more and then the sun gently turns up, gently the warmth, and eventually the man takes the coat off. You know, it's that gentle approach. I've never heard that before, of, but that makes oh, well, complete sense. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. You know, that, that approach, this sort of pushing, which is, you know, a lot of, uh, what shall we say, 
at large that that's the kind of policies you know it's like push push impose impose mm. rules rules and um it's not going to be as good as respecting explaining and so and how do you handle that with a child then because i was maybe i was just a fussy eater i was always scared and still am as an adult scared of trying new things mm. and i think a lot of that comes down to um like texture or being yeah. scared that things are going to make me sick because i've got a fear of being sick and my parents would leave me at the table and I would sit there for hours mm. until I ate my dinner, you know, and I'd just be yeah. sat there crying. It wouldn't be. Yeah. So I now do like the complete opposite with my child because he's a really mm. fussy eater. What, ha- what is, because someone has written in and said, I have an eight-year-old child with Arfid. How mm. do I treat this? What's the best way to approach it? Well, I mean, it, it's really difficult to sort of Generalize. tell you what to do and yeah. you know, generalize this. And, and also because... I would say the worst thing you can do is force feeding and pressure because pressure is really no one's friend. It's just counterproductive. Um, it, I would I'd say to the child, the child needs to feel safe and in control, needs to feel that it can do it in its own terms. Now, sometimes the child just gets a bit stuck in just no, 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 nothing you. And then you might need a little bit of a nudge from a professional, but take the pressure away, take the fighting away because that's counterproductive, just traumatize you. Even if eventually you caved in, I know children who didn't, who Mm. would literally starve themselves for two weeks until they're put in hospital. So depending on the child, do not use the direct forceful approach. Make sure there's plenty of options, gentle leading, gentle reminding, sort of firmness, but don't overdo it. Once the child's got it, the child likes to feel You've asked me to do this. I want to go away and think about it. I felt I've decided. Then I'll come back and maybe I'll try it. Some children are like that. Some children are compliant. Okay, mummy tells me to do it. I better do it. Some children you can bribe and threaten, but a lot you can't. So it's a bit of a dance with a child, but the pressure doesn't work. And, and I also say, I know we're all worried, but I've seen people with the most appalling diets you can think of who still fine 20s and 30s. Mm. Yeah? So when people say, I've got to fix my child by eight, you don't really unless they have a, a slightly exceptional um, medical condition. To be honest, take the pressure away, let them eat what they want, keep bringing their attention by doing it in a gentle and direct way and do the drip feed effect. Don't mm. do the force effect because trust me, I've heard thousands of cases and it's, it's really counterproductive. And I can, I've got information on my YouTube channel about more that you know it will take up the rest of the session to talk about yeah. this. A lot can be done, but not with pressure. I think parents in general we do worry about what our kids Mm. eat so much because obviously you want them to have the right vitamins and yeah whatever but that is always normally my approach not it might not necessarily be the right approach but when I was young I pretty much lived on bread and I'm like Mm. well I've made it to the age of 32 so that's kind of in the back of my mind I try to relax a bit with my son and not think too not worry too much especially your child has has plenty of time and you know the the amount of times I've seen somebody who's actually got a really nice physique and so, you know, what do you eat? Uh, fries and croissants and some, don't, you know, it's like, <laughs> really? Uh, but, but I hear this so often, you just think, okay, no, no not everybody, <laughs> but a lot of people have pretty poor diets and they're still functioning. They're running high level jobs. They're still doing this. You know, it's not yeah. all teens, it's, it's adults as well. So you just think there is time to do this. The, the body can get very efficient if it has to mine nutrients from a poor diet. So it's, it's better to wait with a child to see me when the child's 10 or 12 or 14 rather than try and push it now at eight or nine or something it's better to wait okay so yeah i think that'd be reassuring for a lot of parents 
Um, oh, yeah. And what about people then that are scared to eat in front of other people? Because that's something that came up quite mm. a lot. Where does that normally come from? Well, that, that can be AFID related because if you have difficulty with food, with textures, and you're a slow eater, you're embarrassed. People might be watching you saying, why don't you just eat it like I am? So that they've got this perception of people judging them negatively. So they feel very conscious about that. And other people don't actually have a block with food, but they just don't like the tension in some way. And for some reason, they don't like the idea of eating. They think it's slightly dirty in, in some way or something like that. Mm. So it kind of depends on it. But what I say to people is these are all beliefs and worries manifesting in one way or another. They can all be addressed. Yeah, uh, You mentioned to me in your case, there's a fear of vomiting, which mm. is emetophobia, which you can have offered anemetophobia. But obviously, if, you, if you're afraid of vomiting with something, your brain's on high alert and going, well, I don't want to eat anything risky then. Yeah. Oh, Let's I don't eat shellfish for that pure right. reason. I'm like, oh, no, I don't like shellfish. I've never even really tried it. <laughs> yeah, because your brain said that they're in the risky category. Why take the chance? Yeah. And there's no point saying, I really love them, but I don't want to take the risk. It's easier for the brain to say, oh, it's because I don't like them. We create rationales mm. to justify what we believe because it's easier to live with ourselves that way. <laughs> But, but really, the amount of times uh, clients come in and said, oh, I can't eat any of this food, and they're eating it and even liking it. I'm saying, so just to recap, before the session, your brain was telling you, we can't eat that. No way. We'll hate it. And the reality is, not only are you eating it, you're enjoying it. Yeah. So don't listen to the fear, because the fear isn't accurate. The fear is assuming everything's out to get us, when actually it's not. Or mm. A very small proportion is, but it's always, fear is always inflated. So really, I say to people, in most cases, I treat it like a fear problem rather than a food problem. I don't change food. Food is food. Food's, food's the way it's always been. I change people's perception of the food and the fear around the food or anxiety in other ways. How do you introduce new foods then? If you're someone that is nervous of trying new things, how do you mm. yeah, introduce new foods? <laughs> well, it's quite hard if, depend, if your fear level is quite high. People try, try and do this graded, you know, exposure on their own. And some people improve, but a lot won't because their fear levels are too high. It's a bit like saying, you know, I'm just going to hold one spider today. When you're afraid of spiders, you don't want to go any airy spiders. You can just about see them on TV, but mm. that's it. So it's very hard to say, I'm going to hold a little spider for a week than a slightly bigger spider. They, they won't even go near it. And some people are a little bit like that with food. They still think, I just can't even be in the same room is it as a banana or whatever and so sometimes you do need professional help in that respect because what we do is we de-traumatize whatever that fear was in the past that led to it because as long as the fear is there and it's strong it's going to hijack the brain it's going to take a lot of energy to overcome that and, and most people end up fighting themselves and, and get stressed and frustrated and angry so sometimes the most efficient, I'm sorry, I don't sound like I'm here to solicit anything. You don't have to see me, you can see other people, but <laughs> it is a sense of what's the most efficient use of energy. And sometimes a therapy session is better than trying to do this on your own for weeks and weeks and months on end and having tiny improvement mm. or, or taking three steps back occasionally. So it's not always something that can be, can be done just by some common sense advice. Sometimes you, know, you need a bit of uh, professional input if it's out of hand. And what if you're someone that just doesn't enjoy eating, just doesn't particularly enjoy food? Does that normally mm. come from a deeper place or can that just be mm. don't get enjoyment? Well, I find that's not as common as a lot of people think because I've worked with a lot of people and the parents, for instance, will say, my son's not a foodie, he'll, he'll eat to live. 
<clears throat> and I'm thinking, okay, and I do my therapy, then they're not only eating food, they're getting interested in food. Now, if you think about it, that makes sense because there's no point getting curious and interested in food if you can't eat it. Mm. So the brain says, well, I'm going to switch off interest because what's the point? I'm going to get excited for nothing. But once food is open to you and people go, well, that's that, what's that, what's that? And that's curious. They get excited, they get into food. A lot of people are latent foodies that we didn't think they'd be foodies. So now having said that, there are people in the world who are actually not into food, not because of fear. They're not into it. There's people who are not into sex. Mm. They want to have a relationship, just they're asexual. And I think there is a minority of people like that actually with food, but it's not as much as people think it is. Oh, I'm not into food. Well, let's see what happens after therapy. Yeah. Oh, I'm actually more into food. Well, there you go. It was the fear stopping you. It's not. Yeah, because I would say when I was younger, I used to just say, oh, I'm just not really into food. I just don't enjoy it. You know, I wasn't Mm. someone that was excited about going to a certain restaurant or getting a certain Mm. takeaway. Give me a drink. And I was like, yeah, I really like this drink. That would excite me, weirdly. But food wouldn't. And then as I got older, I realized uh, it's because I was restricting food or I was scared of this or whatever. I mean, if you have a relationship with food, you didn't have particularly a nice relationship with food. You know, you're sort of, you know, you're giving each other a hard time. Mm. So you wouldn't have positive associations. Whereas with drink, if we start later in life at late teens and, you know, we're having fun every time, we have a positive association with drink, but not with food because the food is force feeding, you have to stay at the table, you can't do this, you can't do that. And uh, so it's about changing those those associations we have around things. And how important Mm. would you say the whole sitting down as a family every night having a meal together is? Because I personally feel like there's a big pressure there because mm. I know as as my family that doesn't happen every night because mm. jobs, this, this, that, the yeah. other. So then I have this constant guilt of, oh, I've got a fussy eater. Maybe it's because we don't sit down and all eat lasagna together every night or whatever. Mm. Is And that always seems to be the first thing that is said, mm. I think, when you Google it. Is it that important? I don't think it's important because I often have evening clients. So I'll perhaps eat with my family maybe twice a week. So on the weekends, we have a nice uh, supper, lunch and, uh, you know, meals and possibly once during the weekday because, you know, I work like you at sort of the times we need to work. So I don't think it's the make or break. My kids are used to it. As long as we have it once or twice a week, that's enough. I think we really need to be kind to ourselves. We're trying to do too many things on too many battlefronts. And then getting frustrated, you know, we, we've got to be with our kids all the time, be the perfect play friend and also the perfect this and also the therapist and the coach. And there's too much to do, Frankie, in life. So we've got to take the pressure. And, you know, our kids are pretty resilient, more than we give them credit for. And they'll, they'll find their own ways in, in many ways. They need a bit of nudging and guidance from us. But otherwise, you can't have this perfect problem-free child. Uh, you know, nor is it desirable, you could argue. But, you know, too much love, there'll be a problem. No love is a problem, obviously. Someone, you, you can't have a child that has no baggage. Mm. You know, it's our job to learn baggage and then have something to work on. So do the best you can is what I say to parents. Stop, take Pressure doesn't work for your kid. It doesn't work for you. Take the pressure off and say, this is the best I can do. You know, if I had a fleet of nannies and I was, you know, didn't need to work, fantastic. But we don't. The real world, we've got things we need to do. This will have to do. Mm. And kids are very forgiving. You know, I mean, my uh, my parents, you know, they had stuff to do. I, I wasn't resentful. I thought, well, they've got stuff to do. Mm. I think kids are quite accepting of that. Uh, unless we make an issue. Oh, you must hate mommy because she's never around. You're sort of training the child. Oh, I should hate mommy because she's never around. You know, just say... <laughs> Yeah, you know, we're doing the best we can. You are, so am I. Yeah, you know, I'm so quite funny. It's interesting. Quite a few people um, wrote in and said that they 
they were recovering from an eating disorder, but still find it hard to eat in front of the family and to kind of feel that and to build trust with their family that they are mm. eating. How, how does a family unit deal with that? Well, the first thing I do, if I can speak to whole family, I say, you know, it's not just this child who's the problem. It's the whole system may need an overhaul because everyone says, oh, my daughter or son has this eating problem. You say, well, what's happening in the family as well? Because is there some kind of negative, even sort of subtle criticism when the child is eating, some disapproval, some, you know, judgment? So I'm thinking what I generally do is I say to a child, what do you need to be in place to feel more inclined to eat with your family? Well, if my parents didn't look at me or say these phrases, or do, I'd do it. So I look at the parents, all right, are you on board with that? Would you choose another phrase? What phrase would work with you? Oh, here's some food, help yourself. Can we implement that? So it's very solution focused. Mm. People are very passive. They want the other person to mind read them and figure it out for them. And no one's really communicating but therapy is about communicating with your own inner mind and also with other people and saying, don't, don't let them stab wildly in the dark. Everyone take responsibility for your role rather than sit there feeling hard done by what do you need from others around you so you can progress and to the family. You know, if you want your child to succeed, don't just sit there judging them. That's not going to help. You know, do give I the child what they need. I suppose when someone has an eating disorder and and, and everyone's probably scared of upsetting and saying the wrong thing to each other. So as a parent, you're probably afraid to tip mm. your child back over the edge or, yeah. you know, push them back or make them pull away again. And as, as the person that's suffering, you probably don't want to upset everyone around you. And Yeah, yeah. but th then we're all trying to mind read and second guess yeah. each other and then we get it wrong. Whereas communication, is, I mean, one of the things I like in therapy is I like to be very upfront about elephants in the rooms and things we need to do because it's more helpful for a person to feel acknowledged and validated than all these attempts to protect them, which they don't even need, which are way off the mark yeah. often. So really say, you know, just, you know, even professing, sweetheart, I want, I want to help you, but to be honest, I'm clueless. You know, I don't really know how I can help you. So talk to me, you know, what is it? going on for you what what do you need from us and let's see you know it, it's okay to say I don't know what to say mm. to that and would you say that that's the same as approaching someone so if you feel that someone has an eating disorder what is the best way to approach that with them well I'm afraid it's this kind of rule in therapy that people need to be ready for, for themselves mm. It's a bit like, you know, I see someone smoking in a cafe and I go, hey, here's my card. You need to stop smoking. It's bad for you. You're going to say, sod off, you know. Yeah. Um, they've got to come to me and say, look, you know, I'm getting a bit concerned about my health. And what parents try and do is they try and, they try and speed up that process when the child or whoever is not ready. And what they do is they just, you know, they, they clam up again. So it's better to say, but, you know, by the way, I can see you're suffering. I don't know how to help you. If you ever want help, I'm here for you. I'm happy to help you with that. So you're just reminding them when you're ready, there's avenues available to you, mm -hmm. you know, without judgment. You know, you're saying we're all going through stuff at different periods. This is what you're going through. I went through something else. And you're not the only one with this. There's well-worn channels of helping people with these conditions. And I can, I can help you find them okay. if you're interested when you're ready. So you like to feel people need to feel in control. Yeah. So what, not, not pushed. what would mm. be then your top three tips that you can leave with our listeners? Take the pressure off 
because pressure is no one's friend. Everything is part of a process, so don't rush the process. You know, people have to sometimes bang their heads on the wall before they realize this is hurting. Um, maybe I should stop it. But if you come in and tell them that, they say, don't tell them what to do, they'll bang harder. You know, so the indirect approach works, the direct backfires. And the third thing is, see a good therapist like me. <laughs> I'd get that in. No, the third thing will be something like, don't try and figure everything out. You know, get, get resources, get, get help. And don't think, oh, you know, I should know everything because I love my child. I should instinctively be a therapist and mm. a professor and everything. You, you don't, you know, I, there's no shame in me having an accountant. You know, I'm, I'm not very good at accounts. I prefer someone else to do it. You know, <laughs> yeah, why should true. I be good at everything? Yeah. You know, so why should you know how to help an eating disorder or a phobia? you know, when other people do that for a living, you know. And where so. can people go then if they want some help and advice or they want to find out more information? I mean, I would always get recommendations for this because there's a lot of people and not very highly skilled people. So it depends on the person. Some people have amazing websites, but are not very experienced. They've done minimum training. That's the thing in this country. You have a lot of sort of people with impressive uh, websites and b financial backup, but they've only done one or two weeks of training in hypnosis or NLP or something. And I'm always getting the, <laughs> uh, the results of that. So I'd say get good recommendations. Ask around. There's lots of forums best thing is word of mouth and don't be afraid to ask questions don't just go on the shiny website or you know what the person professors ask around ask information until you feel comfortable this person knows what they're talking about because a lot of people will say oh yeah i work with phobias but they don't have experience with say arfid which is works in a sort of different way mm. in many ways so i think the short answer to that was um get a good recommendation okay where possible yeah. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I found that fascinating. I think as someone who has um, not always had a great relationship with food and, you know, as, as a mum with a fussy eater, we do stress about that a lot. So um, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Open Mind Self-Care Sessions. I really do hope that this has been helpful for you. And if you've been affected by this episode or would like to find out more information regarding mental health, then please head over to mind.org.uk. And if you have any questions which you'd like to get answered, then please follow me on Instagram and look out for my stories where I collect all of your fantastic thoughts for each episode. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Hold up. 